Hello folks, this is Champs at the Lit with Mark and Max. I'm Max, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mark. Hey guys. <laughs> so today, for episode six of our podcast, we're going to be talking about the book The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. We're I keep telling see... people... Sorry, I was going to say I keep telling people the title wrong, and I keep wanting it to be The Unburied Giant, and I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe because the U makes a nice kind of like burial shape. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. I was going to say, I think I'm going to struggle to say Mr. Ishiguru's last name <laughs> throughout this. Uh, so I apologize to him when he uh, most certainly listens to this podcast. Yeah. Sorry, Kazuo. Yeah. Sorry, Kazuo. Yeah, that might be easier. Maybe we should just call him Kazuo or Ka- Kaz. Um, I wonder, do, do you know what he goes by? Kazuo. I guess, yeah, I don't know. Growing, don't growing know. up in, in the UK in like the 60s, 70s, I kind of doubt that the people yeah. around him could pronounce his name. But Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he's, he sounds like he's a Japanese author, but he's uh, an English author. Um, he was born in uh, Japan in Nagasaki, but his, his family moved to England when he was very young. And I think he thinks of himself as very much being an English author and Mm-hmm. In fact, something I had picked up in going through interviews with him for this book is that he didn't actually visit Japan until he was uh, 35, um, yeah. which if you know anything about Ishiguro's work might be surprising because his first couple of books, um, A Pale View of Hills and An Artist in the, of the Floating World, are both set in kind of post-war, late 40s, mid-50s Japan. Um, yeah. And that was really a world that he constructed I guess from, you know, stories that he was told as a child and sort of his uh, vision, you know, films that he had watched. Sure, his um, own Japan. research without going there. Right. But rather than, you know, direct experience of, you know, living in Japan at that time. Um, but in any case, the book we're talking about today, The Buried Giant, um, it came out in uh, 2015. Um, Ishiguro is... A very well-known author. Um, he won the Booker Prize for the Remains of the Day in 1989, and that was also made into a popular movie. Um, and in 2017, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And it's interesting that this book, uh, The Buried Giant, there's a ten gap between it and his ten-year gap. Yeah. Yeah, his previous book, Never Let Me Go. Um, so that's something we can talk a little bit about and what sort of the expectations were from like his reading audience, his reading public. Yeah. And the book that he ended up Yeah, it is, it is a very different book. I mean, the other book of his that I think made a big splash recently was, um, what was it called? Clara yeah, and the Sun. Yeah, Clara and the Sun. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, at least in my circles, that's when most people started sort of paying, or certain circles, people started paying attention to who, who Kazuo Ishiguro was, people who read more kind of, you know, current contemporary fiction. And that, that f- I, I haven't read it, my understanding is it's much more similar to Never Let Me Go. And then obviously the, the first two early novels you mentioned are kind of set in post-war Japan. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, The Very Giant is definitely an outlier in terms of setting, and at least it seems to me in terms of style. Yeah. I guess we should say, you know, right off the bat. So it's sure. a it's a kind of like Arthurian legend. How, how would you describe it, Mark? And and what what's sort of the yeah the it, brief it, synopsis of the book? 
Sure. It, it takes place in kind of an Arthurian Britain or post-Arthurian Britain. Uh, yeah, it's like maybe has... like 500s, something around there. It's like yeah, post, yeah, it's like 400s, post-Roman. 500s. Right. It's like post-Roman, but before the uh, Anglo-Saxons have taken over. Yeah, the I don't think the Romans are ever referenced. But in sort of no, modern like, chronologies, Arthur always comes after mm-hmm. Rome. Yeah, so Rome And leaves. like the, the, the main character has like a Latinized name and, you know, That's there fair. are those yeah, sort of yeah. elements. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it's set in that time and then also has the kind of characteristics of Arthurian legend in terms of like there's a dragon, there are enchantments, Merlin is referenced, mm-hmm. Arthur is referenced. And um, it is about... Uh, an elderly couple who go on a journey to try to find their son and along the way uh, meet several companions who are on kind of journeys or quests of their own. Most notably, there's uh, Saxon, who we come to find out is on a journey to slay a giant. Um, There's an old knight of Arthur's who purports to be trying to slay the same giant, turns out as protecting the, or sorry, not giant, dragon. and then there is uh, a boy who, uh, well, we'll get into exactly what his situation is, but he's bitten by a dragon, maybe, or a cockatrice, and is uh, trying to search for his mother. So they all kind of like interact with the old couple. And then the important kind of setting, the other important setting uh, characteristic is that there's a mist over the land that causes people to forget things. And so. Um, there's just like a total lack of cultural institutional memory in, in the areas with the mist. And even individuals don't have very good long-term memory. They can remember things from the last couple of days. Um, but the farther away it gets, the harder it is. And so the couple actually knows very little about their son or when he left or why he left or where he is or any of that. Right. Yeah. And you sort of discover things about the world, about, uh, where the mist is coming from, you know, we we eventually find the source for that. You sort of find that as you go along this journey with uh, Axel and Beatrice, the Mm -hmm. elderly married couple. Yeah, on that kind of vein of how this is different than his other books, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's some debate over whether this counts as fantasy, uh, because there are sort of magical elements to it. There is a dragon, there are knights who are trying to you know, slay or protect the dragon. Uh, there are pagans and pagan rituals. And um, it it is, yeah, I think unusually for his work, which doesn't generally deal with the supernatural or magic or things like that. And then also it's, you know, set in medieval times, which is classic, you know, typically um, uh, fantasy. Yeah, there's, um, so interviews that he did around the time that the book came out, he talked about, so... When it came out, there was kind of a negative, I mean, obviously not universally, but a lot of people weren't really down for the kind of more uh, fantastical, mythological elements of the book. Like, there are actually ogres in the book, there are dragons, there are pixies. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way he described it in interviews is that if these were things that people at the time in kind of like 6th century Britain could have like reasonably believed in you know say we didn't know a whole lot about how diseases worked so it wasn't like totally unreasonable to think that like a malevolent spirit or a pixie was the source of uh, illness or disease right and so he took that as a given and sort of 
gave those figures actual life in the story. Um, which I think is an interesting choice. And I guess when I first read it, I was sort of of the persuasion too that like, you know, what is all this fantastical <laughs> mythological crap? Like you could write the same novel and just not have those elements and just ground it more. Well, maybe not exactly the same, but you could write a similar kind of Arthurian uh, tale and sort of leave out those elements. Um, but, you know, he chose not to. Uh, maybe more yeah. disagrees. Yeah, well, I, you could definitely write a book in a non-magical <laughs> Arthurian setting, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think you could write this book in this story without those elements. They're pretty yeah. critical to the yeah. plot and the character. I guess that's fair. You know, sometimes I say things and then, <laughs> you know, uh, as they escape my mouth, I realize, well, maybe I didn't actually mean that. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, another kind of important source, you know, if people are interested... Um, there's a, uh, a book, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, um, which is an old, uh, you know, one of these old kind of Arthurian legends. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty recently um, in 27 or 2007, there was a new translation done by uh, Simon Armitage, who's the uh, poet laureate of Great Britain. Um, he also did a, a never like a... Uh, a new translation for the death of King Arthur. And if you look at those kind of two stories, you get a sense of the kind of material that Ishiguro was probably paying some attention to in the way mm -hmm. he constructs the world. Uh, I definitely like in Sir, Sir Gawain, basically when he goes off on his uh, quest to find the uh, the green giant, um, the, the way that the world is described, it's, it's, you know, sort of like when you're in Camelot, when you're in Arthur's castle, there's a sort of ordered world, but quickly when you get outside of that it's all just kind of chaos and yeah. you have to be very wary you know there are no kind there's of even friendly really strangers like, yeah there's not even really like logic to the things that happen so much once you're outside of camelot right mm -hmm. um you just like encounter people and then you're in a situation and you like they're just rules that are arbitrary applied that you'd like now you have to do this thing or you have to do this other thing and you know the hero is faced with this difficult choice that to a modern mind doesn't make any sense because that's not like a real like restriction anywhere. Um, right. And also if you look at something like the death of uh, King Arthur, you know, one of those other old um, kind of Arthurian tales, they're the same kind of fantastical elements. Like Arthur goes over to France, he fights a, a cannibal, they're giants, you know, he's fighting uh you know, there's like evil magic. There's there's all of those yeah, sort yeah. of same same sort of elements. Um, yeah. So, I mean, do you think it works? Like, does does he pull it off? I, I think so. I mean, um, some something that I sort of struggle with this book in general is that it's on. It's honestly not one of my favorite Ishiguro books. There are other okay. works of his that I like better, um, but I I actually listened to this twice. And I'd listened to it previously. Actually, I had read it years ago. I got it as a birthday present. I think around the time that it came out. And I read it then. Mm -hmm. And I'd sort of liked it. But um, I wasn't crazy about it. But um, the more time, time that you spend with it, I think the, the better it gets. And part of that is that there are a lot of sort of connections between characters that you meet along the way. Or even the, like, the, the idea of what is the buried giant. And they're, they're sort of... A lot of that information is difficult to pick up unless you've read it or listened to it a couple of times. And I think that makes it a 
makes it a kind of difficult book, um, but enjoyable because it is difficult, um, because it does sort of benefit from spending more time with. And this is something, there was a Neil Gaiman did a review, and I think the New York uh, Review of Books, mm-hmm. and he sort of talked about the same thing where he, he wasn't like fully convinced by the world that Ishiguro created, and he yeah. couldn't like fully buy into like the the kind of like moments of tension between characters. Like he didn't feel like he was fully invested in the story. But at the same time, it's the sort of book that you sort of want to go back to. And if you do go back to it, um, it gets better with the rereading. Yeah, I think I think it is similar to I think I was I was uh, sort of disagreeing with you earlier when you were saying that the book was itself an Arthurian legend. And maybe now I'm coming around Um, (laughs) because because it is similar to those those tales in that Yeah, there's not nearly as like in in depth character development as you would get in one of Ishiguro's other novels mm-hmm. or um yeah the plot doesn't make as much sense um which I, yeah again is true like if you read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight you're not going to get like a really rich internal understanding of like who Gawain is and how he evolves over time um not not to say this book doesn't have that because it does it does have that um but it's not its primary strength and I think its primary strength is the kind of like the legend part of it of like the different people they meet along the way the experiences they have how they're interconnected what the sort of symbols are that you can you can interpret within it uh, that make it more interesting yeah there's also a sort of element of like an inversion of so like if you take like uh Gwen is a is a sort of central character in this mm-hmm. book you meet him as he's like an old knight that's traveling around that uh this the uh, the main couple of the story end up meeting, <clears throat> sorry, end up meeting along the way, and uh, the sort of the the more that you learn about Gawain and his mission at you know you eventually you learn about his mission and the things that he may or may not have done or seen, you know he yep. almost has like uh, um, post traumatic stress disorder from his time <laughs> fighting for Arthur yeah um and so it's a very different kind of take on that character as opposed to like in sir gawain and the green knight where he is this young knight who's supposed to be you know the most noble the most virtuous knight um in sort of arthur's court and i think that's one of the ways in which he sort of plays with the traditional narrative on you know was Arthur, yeah. you know, this sort of good, you know, mythological figure. And I think that's often how Arthur was used you know, sort of throughout history. Like he's sort of this. Um, the archetype of the perfect king. Right. He's like yeah. the once and future king of England. Right. Yeah. He's sort of this model for what right. one should aspire he, he, to. He reigned over a golden age of, of humanity. Right. Um, it kind of reminds me of the, it's like the Arthurian equivalent of an anti-Western, Right where you take all of the classic <laughs> tropes of a particular genre and then you kind of subvert them. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think like, I mean, Arthur turns out to be like kind of a bad guy. Uh, right. Sir Gawain is like kind of weak and feckless. Right. Um, the, I mean, one of my favorite scenes is when they kill the giant or not the giant, uh, the dragon. And uh, normally like this is the climax of these stories is right. like this this hero has been on, you know, this warrior has been on this really long quest to kill this this dragon. And so you expect a really epic battle. And in this case, it's an old dragon and it's sleeping. And it's like kind of an offhanded moment where he walks over in the middle of a scene and just lops the 
dragon's head off and then they move on and keep yeah. you know dealing with their interpersonal problems yeah it's definitely anti-climatic at that point yeah yeah and i think i think yeah in that way and in other ways he does a great job of yeah subverting those tropes or, or inverting the typical narrative yeah i also want to say that um again something that i picked up in interviews um that ishiguru did is sort of the the idea that he was actually so i guess when he sort of first came was thinking about this idea sort of the the idea of the story um he was basically thinking of sort of contemporary events. He was thinking of um, the wars in the Balkans, mm-hmm. um, what happened in Rwanda. He was basically thinking of examples where communities that had lived kind of closely to one another for a long time suddenly broke down into intercommunal violence. And that's the story that he kind of wanted to tell. He wanted to tell some version of that story. But he didn't think that he had... I guess the story or the skills, or I don't, I don't know exactly what it was, but he didn't want to set it in a sort of modern context. Um, yeah, that definitely instead, is is fraught with a lot of danger in terms of like getting things very correct. Right. Like the research would be really hard. As an outsider, would be really hard. You would risk right. offending various people, or yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sympathetic to not wanting to write that exact version of the book. Right. And it's interesting because I don't think that's something that you would necessarily pick up that he was thinking of these very contemporary events. No. But he chose to set a story, you know, in this kind of misty past, um, the sort of period of history that we don't, you know, know that much about. Um, but play with these same themes of, you know, basically it's you've got the Britons and the Saxons, and the Saxons right. are like slowly expanding across um across yeah the they're like settler slash invaders to mm-hmm. some degree and Ar- and arthur sort of represents the last like great king of the britons and what you learn eventually is that um in order to sort of win a period of peace he broke a truce with the saxons right and these were like communities you know britain uh communities of britons and saxons that have been living together closely um in yeah, peace. I mean, they were like neighboring settlements, neighboring mm-hmm. communities, and yeah, he he, there was like a grand treaty of a kind, right? Right. That right. Sort of meant that they all could live together peaceably. Right. And Arthur, you know, we learn has made or makes this, you know, in the past he made this sort of cold-blooded calculation of, you know, if I break the the treaty now and decimate the Saxon community, he thinks that you know he'll buy peace for his country you know, yeah. for the long term. But what we learn in the story is that, you know, that that ultimately only ends up feeding, you know, another sort of cycle of violence that's uh, put on hold. And it's put on hold through, you know, the mist, which is affecting everybody's memory. And that's sort of the, the bargain, right? Is that, right. Um, and what you learn, again, it's not clear at the beginning of the book, you know, what exactly the mist is, but we eventually learn that it is like a physical thing coming from, um, the dragon Quarig, um, right? So Merlin, Merlin enchants the dragon so that its mm-hmm. breath produces this mist and mm-hmm. makes everybody forgetful, mm-hmm. which is their way of kind of healing the rift that was created by breaking the treaty, essentially. Right, right. And this is something that's like torturing, you know, Gawain throughout the the course of the story. Is you know he sort of has these flashbacks and these memories to. Um, to these battles and 
and because he was there when uh, when Merlin cast the spell on Quirig. And there's this kind of like self-justification. Uh, you know, he, he repeatedly asked characters, you know, were you there? You know, sort of what would you have done in my shoes? And, you know, like I did the best I could. And, you know, I was yeah. a knight of Arthur and, you know, Arthur was great. And, you know, please understand. Um, you know, he yeah. comes off as being a very tortured kind of individual. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see that evolve because he seems so simple at first. And in general, his character in Arthurian legend is to be very simple and pure, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's uh, an important characteristic. Um, I thought that the, I mean, it's, it's, it's such an interesting idea and raises a lot of questions about, yeah, these sort of fractured communities. I mean, even the geopolitics of the decision to break the treaty, it's almost like a prisoner's dilemma where you know, whichever side breaks the treaty first is clearly going to have an advantage. Um, but uh, really, it's in both of their best interests to not break the treaty. So yeah, I mean, it, it seems pretty clear that Arthur makes the wrong decision and, you know, brutally murders lots of people like the slaughter is pretty, pretty bad. It's not just that they, you know, attack some uh, other armies, but these are peaceful settlements that he's having to attack because everybody had kind of given up on war making. And then... I think it also raises interesting questions about, yeah, how what is the right way to deal with these sorts of tragic situations? Like, if you could all just forget that this thing happened and then live together again, would that be good? You know, the Rwandan genocide or South Africa or, you know, the Balkans, there, there are these places where these sorts of things do happen. Um, and I suppose the book makes the argument that forgetting is not the right way to approach it, uh, even if that were possible. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it probably takes a more like, uh, you know, there should be like, you know, a sort of peace and rec reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. It's almost the opposite of the South African truth and reconciliation model, right? Where you come back together and you say, hey, like, we're not going to punish you as long as you tell us the full truth about what you did and what happened and you like own up to your crimes. Um, in this case, like nobody owns up to anything and like both the perpetrator and the victim forget that anything even happened. And then they are able to be reconciled because there's no truth. They just like the truth disappears for everybody, um, which I think to me just feels wrong. Uh, I'm not in favor of just sweeping things under the rug. And it, it also makes you wonder whether people's characters really aren't affected right like if you went through a genocide or something and for some reason got amnesia would that would like the psychic impact of what you experience still not affect your relationship to the people on the opposite side of that conflict i don't know yeah you know just to ground it in the story this is something that like beatrice and axel struggle with so like when, when they set off on their journey um, they both know that they've like forgotten things. Um, but the one thing that they think that they remember and that they can sort of hold on to is that they love one another, that they're to, you know, support one another. Um, and that sort of the bond between them seems like unshakable at the beginning of the story. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but then as they go on, they start to sort of question, you know, well, where, where exactly is their son? what happened to make him leave mm -hmm. and they start to sort of remember like conflicts that they had in the past arguments um and eventually you learn you know 
you learn about what did happen to their son, the sort of marital rift between them. And by the end of the story, um, I think you're really left to wonder, you know, whether it was better, like whether they were happier yeah. having forgotten all of that, you know, bad past between them. Um, yeah. Does that I mean, make sense? It, yeah. 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 I, I think, I it, think that's, that's the sort of I mean, central question. They, of the story. they did seem happier. I think they both had this kind of like nagging feeling in a way that there was something not uh, totally right about their relationship or between them. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting but, the way he does it is like, the, they'll like encounter like an object or like a specific location and they'll remember a bit more it's the way that like uh i think this is very true to the way memory works you know oh, in yeah. the real yeah. world is that you know you often forget things until you're confronted with uh you know a specific place or you hear a song or, or like you smells see a in particular object. are supposed to be really um uh like triggering of memories right right and then there's also the kind of like as Axel and Beatrice and Axel in particular is the one who we get to sort of hang out inside of his head and hear what he's thinking. Mm -hmm. And as he talks about his relationship with Beatrice, there are these kind of like unsettled, disquieting moments where he's like, I can't quite remember, like, I don't know what happened, but it felt like there was something there. And you do over time get the sense that there's, yeah, there, there's something a miss um so yeah i like it's i i do think he leaves it pretty ambiguous as to whether they're better off knowing or not knowing yeah um i mean to be clear i don't think there's a really clear-cut answer but it's yeah, sort of yeah, the, yeah. the question that's raised by the story is you know um what do you lose well maybe like what do you lose by remembering certain things from the past what do you mm -hmm. maybe gain by forgetting things from the past and I guess vice versa too, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I mean if part of the consequence of this miss is like the uh, you you're losing all of your memories, right? Just like anything past like a week ago gets fuzzy. Anything past like two months ago, you just full out for the most part can't remember. And yeah, I mean that's it's not totally clear, right? Because like they remember that they have a son or had a son. Right? That's fair, but yeah. they can't remember. Like you said, I guess, they, I guess they it really gets, can't it gets, remember specifics. Yeah, it gets increasingly blurry right. uh, the farther farther back it is, which I, I suppose is essentially true for everyone. It's just really, really enhanced in their case. Yeah. Um, and usually we have some really strong memories from various points in our lives, right? Right. That are like, oh, there was that day in fourth grade where like this person did this thing and you really remember that. And for them, those are going blurry too. Whereas for a lot of us, those like always remain pretty clear. Um but I think we probably also would you say as people we often overestimate our our memory too. Yes. Right. This is true. We we, we think that we remember things or you know, we're remembering things accurately, but you know, this happens with early childhood memories, right? That often what you think you remember about your childhood, you're actually remembering like stories that were told to you later on by your right. like parents or siblings. Um, and I know like, you know, speaking uh forensically is that the right word and it's like you know it's it's pretty well established that like witnesses sure are actually yeah. terrible at remembering what happened you know during yeah. you know purported crimes right there's and that a, you really a, can't trust uh, if you listen to the malcolm gladwell podcast episode about this yeah i think to I rehabilitate have, yeah. brian williams yeah um 
he he, he talks oh, about yeah, 9-11 yeah, yeah. specifically and how that was like memory researchers use that as an experiment because people typically remember where they were on 9-11 right right uh, and so they knew as soon as 9-11 happened that that would be the case and so they went out and got everybody to write down you know like days after or they got a sample of people to write down what they were doing and where they were and then 10 years later asked them the same question and people had could not remember they had totally different memories and they wouldn't even believe the researchers when they showed them their original <laughs> like writing they would be like no no i got that wrong that day like i i know where i was i know who i was talking to that kind of thing um yeah so i think i think for sure memory is unreliable uh but for them it is not just unreliable but it just it like actually fades like they would have forgotten that 9-11 mm -hmm. happened right in their case um, but, but I, think I think that that's sort of what he's getting to like he you know he's got this story with these fantastical elements in it with the you know the mist that's like physical thing that's mm -hmm. actually affecting people but it speaks to a more sort of ordinary human experience of how we forget about things in the past or we misremember things in the past or there are things we would you know rather forget you know rather yeah. than being you know reminded of them yeah yeah i mean i think this is interesting from a cultural level as well that um, you know, we as a society can choose which things to enshrine and make sure that we remember. And we can also try to erase other things or not focus on them. Uh, and they, you know, sort of lose all of their cultural institutional memory. But you can imagine a society that's been fractured. Do they choose to you know, erect monuments and talk about it a lot, you know, like Germany talking about the Holocaust or mm -hmm. South Africa talking about apartheid all the time? Or should you try to, you know, just be like, well, that was a thing that happened and we're not going to talk about it anymore um, and try to try to move on from it, say, oh, that's in the past. I mean, I guess this happens at the micro level too, like in a relationship or in other places, if something really bad happens, do you bring it up? Do you, do you talk about it? I think there are different schools of thought, right? There's some people would say you shouldn't dwell on it all the time and it's just going to make things worse. Other people would say the only way to prevent this kind of thing from happening again and to honor the victims is to uh, make sure that everybody knows about it and that you think about it consciously and it is, you know, a part of future decision making. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you definitely have a point. Um, like historically speaking and, you know, looking at, World War Two is a is a really good example of like mm -hmm. um, after World War Two, um, you know, European nations had sort of different approaches to how they remembered the events of the war and sort of their place in the war. Like in France, you know, there was a lot of emphasis placed on uh, people who resisted uh, yeah. Nazi occupation and sort of the Vichy regime, when you know, in fact that was a small minority of the total population. And most people, you know, sort of went along to get along. Right. And in, you know, Germany, they sort of had this idea of, you know, it was important to remember the past and to, you know, almost like, uh, I don't know, codify it or like, uh, yeah, continuously remind themselves of, you know, what was done. And yeah, it sort almost of feels like it. penance in a way. Right. And I think they're, you know, like, there are scholars have different opinions over you sure, know whether sure. Germany actually successfully did that or you know you know there were lots of former Nazis that you know right, or you know right. Nazi adjacent officials that became important figures in the West German government for example and you know the Soviets had a totally different approach where they remembered the victims you know um, 
they remembered the victims of the war and remembered the victims of like Nazi right. aggression, but there wasn't any mention of like Jewish victims, right? Or like uh, Roma victims, right? It wasn't like particularized. Like it was just like, you know, all these people suffered, yeah. Yeah, um, and a, it was all bad Nazi memory. aggression, right? And of course, none of their you know their own part in sort of um, you know a lot of the most the worst affected places you know speaking current events like places in Ukraine places in Poland mm-hmm. you know they were the worst affected because they were uh, first invaded by Germany or invaded by the USSR and then vice versa right they you were know, they were the they contested were the sort of, sites the yeah, front lines yeah the sort of twice burned over areas yeah. Um, yeah so i think yeah that's a very i don't know if, if people are interested the historian tony jett in his book um, about european history like contemporary european history after world war ii he has a really interesting essay um the book's called post-war and there's a really interesting essay at the end talking about um the holocaust and the way it was remembered across europe um and sort of what it means i don't know you know as historians, but also as people and, and mm-hmm. the role of like studying history, because it's important to remember these sort of events and not to, you know, forget about them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that speaks to the, you know, the idea of the buried giant where, you know, yes, maybe there are things that we would like to bury about the past uh, that makes life like in the present day easier to live, to, to sort of bear. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, that sort of ignoring what happened in the past, it, it more than likely it breaks down. And in the story, the way that eventually is going to break down is that there's going to be another war between the Saxons and the Britons. Yeah, they and... all they all sort of take it as given. It's like very clear mm-hmm. that now that they all remember what happened and that the mm-hmm. Britons broke the treaty and betrayed the Saxons, that the Saxons are mad about it and they mm-hmm. want justice mm-hmm. or revenge or however you want to yeah and, and that's the whole sort of motivation for the um the warrior winston um you know he's he's this figure that's sort of caught between the two worlds because he was raised in a britain community or a community of britons mm-hmm. um close to one of the like kings of the britons in the current you know time of the book brennis um but He's a Saxon by birth and, you know, he swears vengeance against the Britons eventually. And his whole sort of motivation to kill Quirig and to end the mist is because it will hasten the war between the Saxons and the Britons. And his relationship with the uh, the boy, um, what's Edwin. his name? Yeah, Edwin. He, um, he, he wants to pass his hatred down to the next generation. Right. Um, and that's that's you know that that is that element yeah. of the story too. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting that he's yeah trying to unbury the giant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, and there's this idea of right that like he he can't quite bring himself to hate Britons with the intensity that he wants to, right? Like yeah. he, he, you know, because he was raised by them and he knows right. that they're not all bad people, right? Like um, you know, Axel and Beatrice, they're fine. Yeah, folks yeah, he sort he, of he feels right. genuine sympathy towards them, but he regrets that he feels that. Right. Uh, he feels that as a weakness and as a betrayal of his people because probably because it was that kind of sympathy and, you know, sort of fellow feeling that lulled them into a sense of security and then allowed them to be betrayed. Right. And so he 
sort of exhorts Edwin, right? Makes Edwin promise to not ever feel that, right? Mm -hmm. And Edwin's like, even these two good Britons, you know, like you even uses them. And he's like, yes, even them, you must hate them. Right. Uh, Like hate all Britons. That is what, that is what I require of you. Right. And I think you get the sense that like, you know, Edwin's also sort of torn about this too, but the sort of conclusion to the story is that, you know, he's, he's, he's walking away from the elderly couple and he's turning his back, you know, He's not going, he's going to take up that sort of mantle of hatred from, uh, from Winston, from his sort of mentor. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about like sort of stylistic elements of the books that are interesting. And then we'll go through, I think there are places. So, well, before we get to that, let's just, let's just do the stylistic elements. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's talk about some of the stylistic things. Um, I guess you, you had some things about, um, his own reflection on the style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the, the first thing to say, something interesting that I picked up from interviews that he gave is that he threw out the first draft of the book. I don't know, you know, if it was the <laughs> entire book or what, but I guess his wife read it and <laughs> she wasn't a fan. And I think part of that was that he tried to sort of ape a, uh, uh, a um, like an old English sort of style. Right. Or yeah. like older than old English. I don't know, like a sort of the style in which, you know, so you Wayne and Green Knight are, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that just didn't work, I guess. Um, so he had to sort of go back to the drawing board. And what he said in one of the interviews is that he tried to like strip down his language um, to like, you know, is that very sort of basic elements? Yeah. And use that to sort of build up the story again. Um, and yeah, I do the, think that's a that's a good way to sort of describe the, the style in which it's written is that it is yeah the language is simple mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, that's a good description and then yeah. the other like major stylistic element that's different about this than pretty much most of his other books is that it's it's not told in first person mm-hmm. there's not a first person narrative that's a that's a strong element in most of his books is that um, so if readers or listeners are familiar like remains of the day you have uh stevens the butler and he's sort of mm-hmm. narrating events from his life and the story of his service um uh, to this family and it, he's a uh, presumably he's talking to like another butler that's sort of the style in which he's written or like you mm-hmm. know somebody that was in a similar profession and then like never let me go there's the narrator kathy and there's a sense in which she's sort of talking to another clone about her experience mm-hmm. but it's this very personal first-hand experience of the story and you get some of that, you know, there are some chapters that are like written from Gwen's perspective, yeah. from Edwin's perspective. Yeah, I thought the chapters from Gwen's perspective were particularly strong. I thought mm-hmm. the chapters from Edwin's perspective were weak. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the Gwen stuff is great where he's sort of musing and reminiscing and mm-hmm. kind of talking to himself. And it, it really does feel like, you know, sort of an old man reflecting on his long and, you know, sort of complicated life. Yeah, he's like talking to his horse, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's got some comic relief in it too. Which yeah, is nice. yeah. Um, but I think you know, if if you're familiar with Ishiguro's work, that that does stand out. Um, that's sort of the style in which it's written, the sort of remove of having like a third person narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we could talk a bit about this, like when we talk about what the Berry Giant is or what it might be. But there are places where he addresses a you um yeah and those are interesting too the way he does that the way he sort of brings the reader into the story 
and what you're sort of led to presume about who you as the reader are supposed to be. Like in, like I said, like in Never Let Me Go, the the reader, like the person listening to Stephen's story is like a Never Butler. And in uh, Never Let Me Go, the person listening to Kathy's story is like a Never Clone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did, I was annoyed by his technique of jumping around a lot in time. Uh, I understand the point of it, given that so much of the book is contemplating memory and the theme of memory, which seems to also just be a general theme through his work uh, in other books as well. But he does this thing, right, where you're in the middle of a scene uh, and, you know, Axel's talking to somebody and then it'll just break and then it'll be like Axel recalled that that person's response to what he had just said was somewhat strange. Uh, And it'll just like jump forward in time and you'll finish the scene, but the scene will be finished as a recollection instead of just finishing the scene out in real time. Uh, I found it kind of disjointed and mostly just, yeah, kind of annoying. Like it just disrupted the flow of what you were experiencing in a way that I don't think really tells you anything about memory because like if you're experiencing something in real time, that's not a memory. If you're remembering something, you're not going to pick it up halfway through like a conversation. Anyway, uh, I, I, I didn't think it did any work and I thought it was obnoxious, uh, but that's just my quibble. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those elements of the, the book that makes it a bit more, you know, it doesn't flow as well as, you know, perhaps if he hadn't done that as much. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I guess the final, I mean, this would be like multi points, multi, <laughs> multi segments, but the, the final idea that we have in terms of our discussion is, we want to talk a bit about places where we were sort of confused over like what exactly is happening in the story or, <laughs> you know, what, what do these things mean? Yeah. And, and, this is... and in fact, Mark, you're the one, you know, you had these sort of questions after listening to it the first time and you tasked me with going back and trying to answer them for you. Yeah. Yeah. You were good enough to listen to it again and to <laughs> very carefully note down the, the answers to my questions. I think this yeah. is, this is a demonstration of both, points we've brought up already which is that on the one hand it is one of his weaker books and is like a little bit confusing and like just isn't isn't as tight and strong on the other hand it is also a book that benefits from spending more time with it and is not obvious at first glance and maybe maybe is designed that way yeah Uh, i mean yeah i'd say there's probably some intentional design there yeah uh, it's it's hard to know yeah so my first question was and we've sort of let's let's start with the second one let's let's do that first one last because that's like the whole you know yeah yeah. so my my second question was uh what's the deal with edwin uh is just the general (laughs) question he's kind of a weird character i think he so this this is the boy who um is saxon and Mm -hmm. beatrice and axel show up in the saxon village and they want to kill him because he had been captured well first he's captured by ogres and they go rescue him but then when he comes back he seems weird and they're suspicious that he's been tainted or cursed or affected by the ogres somehow and so he has to leave the village and so they agree to take him away from the village to essentially save his life because otherwise he would be killed um and they they view this as, as a superstition but over time it emerges that he actually does seem like he is psychically affected by what happened right yeah he starts to have some some kind of like supernatural powers yeah he has powers and like it's not clear whether they're total delusions or 
eventually it seems like he has some sort of connection to the dragon and he is he can find the dragon they have like he's he's, he's trying to seek the dragon out um and so Wiston uses him as uh you know sort of a bloodhound to find his target mm-hmm. um but I think Edwin Edwin doesn't have he gets some chapters to himself but he doesn't really have any character development um and he's just very confusing because there's this sense that he's talking to his mother and trying to save his mother from somebody and he mm-hmm. thinks the mother is the dragon is his mother but it's not clear if that was always the case or just after he got this weird bite uh and it's called a dragon bite but the the animal kind of seems like a cockatrice anyway rather than explaining all the ways in which i can i'm confused i'll just say that he was a confusing character and his sort of backstory and even what was going on with him was never that clear to me yeah and i think you know basically if you i guess if you read the story closely if you or if you reread it you sort of pick up on you know in essence yeah he was bitten by some sort of creature um which is maybe a dragon. Like eventually it's called a dragon, but it's described as a, a plucked chicken with a head of a serpent. Right, which you sounds know? like and a so, cockatrice. Right, and so yeah, what exactly that is, we, we're not sure. And it's, um, it's basically after the dragon bite that he starts to be like sort of compelled to seek out Quarig, who's a she-dragon. And so the idea is like, you know, he's almost like become a dragon, like a male dragon mm-hmm. that's then compelled to find or impelled to find a female dragon, which is Quarig. Um, and yeah, basically until up until the point that Winston kills Quarig, um, Edwin thinks that he's leading Winston to save his mother, um, yeah. who he thinks, you know, or at least he, he has a memory of her being captured by sort of like brigands earlier, you know, when he was a young, you know, young child. Right. Um, and he has this idea. I mean, I think it seems pretty clear after rereading that he didn't always have this idea, but like after the dragon bites him, and then after he has an interaction with a, uh, well, I guess before the dragon bites him, he has an interaction with a girl that he meets. Right. There's this girl who is also similarly captive, it seems mm-hmm. like, and it's traveling around with some guys who sort of use and abuse her, but mm-hmm. maybe it's not clear to what extent she's like consenting or complicit in what's going on mm-hmm. um but yeah he he encounters her and that seems to at least in the story is the first time we hear him thinking about his mom or the first time he seems to have this idea that his his mother is out there and is is waiting on him to save her because right. she is also traveling around against her will right uh but yeah, yeah it's, i mean the, it's the such girl... a strong clear idea in his head and it's not mm-hmm. clear if he just literally made this up out of nowhere or if this is based in reality or if he is in fact somewhat supernatural or cursed even prior to the dragon's bite after he gets back from the the ogres with the dragon's bite he seems to think he has power that he can he's like trapped in this barn and he like starts circling the Mm -hmm. the object in the barn and is like calling Wiston to him and Wiston does in fact show up so he thinks it seems to think he has power to like summon and to do these things and it's not ever explained whether he actually has that or whether that's just a delusion yeah to me that that seems more like the delusional part of it that he's got some sort of like special gift to like like that he called Winston to save Mm -hmm. him from the barn um but there's a more like um 
Yeah, see, you I know? think that's kind of annoying because I feel like if you if 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 you are Ichiguro like and you want to buy into the Arthurian world and the Arthurian mindset, they don't believe in delusions, right? Like that's not that's not in their lexicon because that's a modern psychological idea, um, and so in the same way that yeah, like disease spreading from unwashed hands is not in their like paradigm so you shouldn't have anything about that in your book you also shouldn't have like ill delusions people should be like actually i don't know there should be a supernatural explanation to apparently supernatural phenomena for these people yes at the end of the day um like like a lot in the story it's not it's never really clearly explained right and you're sort of left um you know it you're not sure whether these were actual uh sort of powers that he had or not Although it does seem, you know, he is the one that leads them to Querig. So there's obviously some sort of connection where he's able to sort of sense the dragon. That seems to be like, yes, you know, yeah. something that's actually there. But does yeah, he have these like, special powers to, you know, call Winston and stuff like that? Not clear. Right. Um, I guess let's talk about the buried giant next and then we can talk about the boatman for the final. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, mm-hmm. there's this... He never explicitly says, here's what the buried giant is. Uh, and I think what makes it partly more confusing is that there are a few references where two like giants in the landscape or a buried giant having existed. And so when I heard those come up really early on in the book, it made me think that there was like something was going to recur with like a giant or the buried giant or something that it never did. Um, and so I think it wasn't clear to me how metaphorical that title is yeah i mean i think basically the berry giant operates on two levels it is a physical thing it's like a location in the book you mm-hmm. learn but it's also a metaphor um in terms of being well let's say a physical thing first um so it's mentioned there's like a mound that axel and beatrice have to cross yes um and so maybe that's you know that's the sort of first reference to some sort of like you know, buried something that they have to cross. And yeah, then and I think it's, it's referenced as a giant something or other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the giant's cairn. So this yes. is like when eventually they get to Quarag's lair, there's this like stack of stones, I guess, like mm-hmm. on a hilltop. And that's the right. giant's I mean, cairn. A, a, a cairn is, yeah, any stack of stones. It's used as like trail markers these days <laughs> when hiking, right? But it also was you know is a form of burial that you just stack stones over a body right Mm -hmm. and i think what he there's a i can't remember exactly what chapter is but there's a chapter where it opens and it's addressing a you like it's um gosh i guess maybe i don't have the exact quote but i think what you can infer from the text is that the you in this case are the uh, the slaughtered innocents? Um, now maybe this is like going back further in time, but more recently mm. it's like the Saxon women and children that were killed by Arthur's men, right? Um, and they're the ones that are being addressed, like maybe throughout the entire story. Like that's who's being told the story. Mm-hmm. Like in other of Ishiguro's book, there's often, you know, there's somebody that the the protagonist, the narrator of the story, is telling the story to, right? Um, and there are other points where he sort of jumps out, like when he's describing the uh, Saxon village and how mm-hmm. it differs from the Britain 
village, the Britain's yep. community, he makes some remark about how like you, you would find this to be the Saxon village to be more familiar, like in terms of the way it was set up. And it's basically like, you know, this is like some period of time after uh, these people yeah. were killed. Right. And so maybe like the village design has changed or like some elements of the village have changed. It's funny but when, you I, when I read like that, I took that to child. be like you as a modern reader because the Britain village is weird. It's like right. a weird underground tunnel, like Warren right. tunnel thing, which right. is very different. And so if he was speaking to me as a modern person. Right. It is true that I would find the Saxon village more. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's how you sort of read it at first. But I think. Um, I'll, yeah, I think I'll, when you read it more closely... I'll be agnostic get... as to whether your interpretation is intended, but I do like your interpretation. Yeah. I think it's, it's, a, it's a valid way of thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I will also say there's an interview that he did where he mentions this, you know, this sort of idea of, you know, who the you was. I think like an audience member asked him about, you know, this oh, line from, okay. from the book. Honestly, I have to go back to... Sure. Yeah, yeah. Notes. I guess I didn't. We got notes, people. Okay, don't think that we don't have notes. I got notes in front of me, but I got oh, more Max notes. Max has notes on okay? notes. On I got notes. notes on notes, and sometimes <laughs> the exact information gets lost. <laughs> okay, but that's how you know it sort of operates. It's this physical thing. It's a it's a right. giant's cairn. That's the buried giant. Yeah, okay, yeah. but it's also a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Um, I think you know it's a metaphor for the things that we would rather leave buried. Yeah, for sure. I think I think the metaphor is more apparent if you think about it. That it is, yeah, it's it's the stuff that you want to sweep under the rug um, mm -hmm. that you don't want to think about. And then, yeah, I think the physical idea. The, I mean, the idea that maybe even the Cairn is a deliberate monument to the the people who were right. who were killed. Right. Um, and I think it's sort of ambiguous, right? Like you know, maybe this is something that's been on the landscape for you know hundreds of years prior. Right. Sure. Or even thousands of years, you know, maybe it goes yeah, yeah. way, way, way back. Right. But like in the sort of modern context of the book, uh, you know, fifth century, sixth century Britain, it's a monument to or it could be seen as a monument to the slaughtered Saxon innocents. Yeah. I mean, it's also important geographically that it's what they have to climb up to get to the dragon mm -hmm. and to slay the dragon, which then will unbury the giant in the sense of like, it will return the lost memories of the atrocities. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a line that says the giant once well buried now stirs. Yeah. And it's talking about, you know, now that Craig's dead, the sort of inevitable next step for the story, you know, after the book ends will be, mm -hmm. you know, violence between Saxons and Britons. Right. You know, return to return to the violence that was buried. Yeah. So to speak. All um, right. For the final few minutes, let's talk about the boatman narrator, the final chapter, and I guess our theories on. I we you know, we had talked about this earlier, right? Like um, the the sort of parting scene between Axel and Beatrice, and and what the importance of that is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the it is only after they slay the giant that all of their memories start kind of flooding back mm -hmm. and without the mist there they realize that what happened was uh that beatrice was unfaithful to axel mm -hmm. and um that their son took offense at that and also took offense at his father forgiving her uh and then he yeah. basically well, for i think for his, the way axel treated beatrice too right yeah yeah that's yeah. true um and then he flees their community um and then after leaving gets sick right 
we we don't know the full story of how he dies, but essentially he 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 then falls ill of plague and yeah yeah it says that and, his son the son died of plague yeah, yeah. and so then he dies mm-hmm. um and so that's obviously a very you know they were they, they think they're looking for their son but right. really they're essentially looking for their son's grave to visit it and right. there's obviously a deeply painful memory they thought they were you know a very happy couple off to right. visit their son on a holiday essentially mm-hmm. uh, and maybe go live with him so that they could all be together as a family and then now they yeah, realize that all these terrible things have happened to their family. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's this interesting character, the boatman. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, maybe, I guess you could speculate that maybe the boatman, maybe he's the narrator for the entire story. Uh, I mean, maybe not. But but he's this That's sort of re- idea. Re- recurring character. I think they meet him three times, or maybe yes. they meet some version of him three times. It's not it, totally clear. It's not clear if he's this... He, He's either an archetype because they they do sort of reference boat men as a concept and that they all must mm-hmm. be like this, uh, but it also just very much the way the character is written feels like it's the same guy every time. Yeah, yeah. They meet him early on in their journey. They're sort of sheltering from rain, and they meet a boatman. And then later, they've got to like cross a river, and they meet a boatman that helps them get across the river. And then in the final chapter, when they finally realize you know, that their son died and they think they've found his burial site. Um, they've got across, you know, a lake and the boatman is there. And there's this sort of idea of if a couple has like, uh, I guess, true love, right? Or like mm-hmm. a, a true bond that they'll be able to cross together. There's a, there's another character that sort of introduces this idea to, to Beatrice and Axel that like, some married couples, you know, they were so strong, I guess, in life, like as partners, that they're able to sort of cross this river with the boatman together and re- right. re- remain together sort of in the afterlife, you might say. Right. Yeah, this is this is raised by a woman who uh, was not able to accompany her husband, thought mm-hmm. she would be able to, and then her husband gets taken over. She doesn't get taken over, so she's permanently now separated from her husband. And so she's trying to harass the boatman for the rest right. of her life right. to get her revenge. And this kind of plants a, a deep insecurity in Beatrice about mm-hmm. their bond and if they would be able to stay together. Um, but then in the final scene, right, they need to cross the river to go uh, visit their son's grave. And it suddenly becomes very ambiguous as to what their bond is do they want to stay together are they good together given all the things they've remembered about their past yeah and i think it's also a sort of reversal i think for most of the story it's sort of beatrice has these doubts yep. about like the relationship and you know what what may have happened in the past before they remember you know before they remember yeah i mean there's the even a point where axel thinks that he was the one who was unfaithful right mm-hmm. um and then after the mist clears, he realizes that the opposite is true. But during during the early parts of the book, it does feel like she's the one who is maybe the aggrieved party. She's the one who's insecure. She's the one who, you know, and he's the one trying to shore up their relationship. Like, um, you know, basically the last scene of the book is Axel turning his back on the boatman and his wife as they go away. And he doesn't answer, the boatman asks him some questions and he doesn't answer it. He just continues to walk away. So to me, it seems like, you know, Axel, 
you know, is going to go away and Beatrice is going to go away to this other place. And I think, you know, there's this other idea that like Beatrice is sick. Like she has some sort of yeah. like unknown disease that's introduced yes. pretty early on. Like she's seeking treatment for it. That sort of becomes like a, a secondary motivation for the quest is like to find like uh right uh, almost right. like there's, a doctor there's this way in which the boatman is like chiron uh on the river yeah. sticks right that yeah. he is maybe ferrying people over to the afterlife as right. opposed to just ferrying them across right. random rivers and so maybe it's just like you know it's beatrice's time like you know she's gonna yeah. be she's gonna die soon but axel still has some life but it's also a sort of metaphor for you know at, by the end of the story I don't know it's it, to me it seems more like axel is the one that has sort of doubts about his relationship to beatrice and their yes. sort of like future you know he had thought that they could live you know not just together in life you know in life forever but that they could you know live together beyond that forever right yeah yeah it's it's he he's no longer certain about if they should be together well, uh, whatever, man. You know, it's just a freaking story, okay? Let's not talk for yeah. I mean, it is. It's funny. It. The whole the whole book just has a very similar mood to Never Let Me Go, um, in that it's like contemplative and just I don't know, slightly depressing. <laughs> it's like it feels very <laughs> gloomy. Isn't quite the right word, but it is kind of gray. Uh, but it is. I don't know. I, I I thought it was a good book. Like we said, yeah, it definitely benefits from a rereading or at least of a deeper analysis of it, mm -hmm. um, which hopefully we've provided for some people who don't want to reread it. Yeah, or maybe you've read it and this will spark some uh, interesting thoughts in your brain case. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah, but this is this is a good one. Um, yeah. I thought I thought for a good chunk of it that I was that it was I guess before reading I kept thinking it was a YA novel. Maybe because I saw it on some YA novel <laughs> list, but it was not. Yeah, that's what you said to me when se. I suggested it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think it's it's for adults. You know, not that you can't read YA as an adult. It's a it's a fairy story for adults. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, sometimes we need those. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Thanks to Wes Braver for creating our theme music. You can check out Wes on Instagram and TikTok. His uh, handle is at Wes Braver. That's W-E-S-B-R-A-V-E-R. -E -E you can also find us on Instagram at Champs at the Lit. Uh, Mark's handling our socials. I don't know anything about that. Uh, you can also find our webpage, and you can find us on your uh, podcatcher of choice, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, you name it. All right, uh, in three weeks' time, we'll have a new episode. Our seventh episode is going to be on the book American Prometheus by Martin J. Sherwin and Kai Bird. It's a biography of Robert J. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, you might know, is the father of the atomic bomb, the director of the Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, during the Second World War. He became an important uh, figure in the early development of American nuclear policy. 
and he was also one of the most high-profile individuals to be caught up in the McCarthyite Red Scare of the early 1950s. We talk about all that for a very long time, so please give that a listen in three weeks' time. And uh, finally, we're also thinking of renaming the podcast. Uh, let us know, listeners, I guess, or Mark know. Mark's probably got more contact with you than I do, so maybe let him know. Uh, I guess a lot of you are confused over the title. Um, I can also claim some confusion. Um, again, I'm going to blame this on Mark, uh, as he's the one who came up with it. But, you know, whatever. Podcast title, it's just a podcast title. Uh, I was thinking maybe something like Killing, uh, killing Time uh, with Books. Or uh, Killing Time Reading and Talking About Books podcast. I don't know, you know, I'm just, just spitballing here. But uh, you let me know, listener, and uh, we'll work something out, uh, something a bit more straightforward and uh, understandable. All right, bye for now. Talk to you again in three weeks.